0: Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary, Episode 7 Weaknesses, Part 2 Observed, Speculated, and Interests. I have so many questions. Then, of course, there's the question on everyone's mind. Then I'll ask the obvious question. Start asking questions. You're the answer, son. Welcome to Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary. I'm your Man of Steel apologist, Dr. Awkward. I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love discussing the Man of Steel and the DC Cinematic Universe. Together, we'll endeavor to answer the questions, criticisms, and controversies raised by the Man of Steel and those excited by the anticipated DC Cinematic Universe. Last episode, we broke down how the powers may work or be suppressed. In today's episode, we'll apply those explanations, in addition to other ones implied by the film, to come up with a list of possible weaknesses or challenges that Superman may have to face in the ongoing DC Cinematic Universe. We'll talk about the ones that Batman may be able to employ, and we'll discuss if Batman and Superman are really going to have to throw down. This podcast dives deep into the Man of Steel to answer the critics and the confused. This show is not meant to convert anybody, but to celebrate a film that leaves a lot of wonderful room for interpretation and investigation. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who love The Man of Steel and love to chew their food. We'll start with diegetic analysis for what happened in the film, then analyze the creative decisions that took place outside the film. For now... We're doing general topic episodes like this one, so thanks for joining me. Today's episode is going to be a little more freeform than the typical ones. Um, Usually I try to prep by writing everything out in pretty extensive notes with all my little points and uh, all the little tangents that I'm going to discuss. Unfortunately, because of family commitments and scheduling issues that aren't interesting to you whatsoever, this was the only time that I could record and none of my notes are available right now, so I'm just sort of doing this on the fly. I just outlined all my points on the back of a napkin, and we're going to go from there. So this is the rough outline for what today's episode is going to be. I think we'll start off with maybe the physical threats to Superman as seen in Man of Steel, the ones that were fairly clear. Then I think we can move into some speculated abilities, things that maybe might be vulnerabilities that Superman has, but we're not so sure We're extending out the logic of what we've seen in the film and using that as a basis to establish weaknesses that we may project into the future. We're also taking a look at the Superman tradition and things that have traditionally stymied or stalled or harmed or hurt the Man of Steel. We'll briefly do a Batman application section just to see if any of the ones that we just listed can be used, abused, or easily applied by the Bat against Superman. And then we'll go into Superman's real weakness, leverages against his character and his interests, and how that can give rise to interesting character conflict that doesn't require Batman actually knocking out or beating Superman in a physical confrontation. So, based on... Man of Steel, I think off the top of our heads, we can think of three rather clear weaknesses. One that we talked about extensively in the last episode, which is the atmospheric weakness. We can follow that with, obviously, the way that Zod was dispatched, the next step, and then finally the way all the other Kryptonians were dispatched, which is dimensional removal, or the uh, Phantom Zone singularity. Those three are fairly obvious. We also have a number of moments where Kryptonians Have to deal with sensory overload. And then there's a whole series of times that Superman or Kryptonians have been stunned or stalled, knocked out, or otherwise delayed. So, like I said in the opening, in these episodes, we start out by looking at things diegetically and mechanically right now. We're not really looking into uh, the creative choices behind Superman and lethal force and self defense and utilitarian values and being a moral paragon and all those other controversies, at this time, we're just looking at it from within the reality of the story itself, sort of breaking down the mechanics and details of those weaknesses. So let's start with the next snap and what that can enlighten us on, what kind of insights we can get from the next snap. Well, the first thing is the neck snap obviously is a physical trauma. And as we've discussed in prior episodes, that indicates baseline durability for solar powered Kryptonians. Presumably, if you can apply sufficient force at the right angle, at the right degree to a participant who can't resist your overcoming force, you can kill a Kryptonian in that manner. But what we need to do is actually really break down how neck trauma works. Having your neck broken doesn't always kill you. Throughout the film, we never see any of Superman's bones break. You know, he's never had any bruises raised or blood spilled, despite the incredible forces that Superman must have been subjected to in the film. However, ultimately, Zod is stopped by twisting his neck. So how does that work? And this will get a little bit gruesome, but we'll try to treat the subject a little dispassionately. So uh, don't worry, I I shouldn't get too gory. But essentially, neck-breaking can lead to a cessation of life through a number of different means. One is the severing of the spinal cord. Another is asphyxiation. It can be caused by internal decapitation or bleeding out. And an important note is that it can be survived. As we, as we mentioned, you can have your neck broken and you can still survive. In the film, we see what is essentially an instantaneous death. So typically, that is the result of the severing of the uh, CNS or central nervous system. Uh, which eventually leads to the cessation of the uh, autonomous functions. As we've mentioned in a previous episode, that would take a lot of force and a lot of torque, and it's something that a Kryptonian would be able to potentially resist. It isn't simply the tensile strength of his neck, but also that super strength factor that Kryptonians are able to contribute to their neck. So not just the durability of his neck, but also the strength of his neck. So it is potentially something that Superman could resist in the future. Therefore, it doesn't seem like a very plausible or reliable means of killing Superman going forwards. However, it could serve as an interesting visual cue if a strong enough individual were to put Superman in such a hold or a headlock that would recall in the audience that same feeling of jeopardy. There was a spate of neck-cracking and neck-breaking within the pre-New 52, post-Crisis DC comic book universe. If you're not familiar, there certainly was the Infinite Crisis sacrifice arc where Wonder Woman dispatched of Maxwell Lord, who was mind-controlling Superman, via a neck-snap. Additionally, around that time... Barry Allen returned from the grave. And you may remember that he was sort of pushed into and towards retirement uh, when he killed Professor Zoom with a similar neck snap. (laughs) And in fact, there's actually a uh, sort of infamous Batman panel out there where a Batman impersonator was slaying his victims by snapping their necks. So there is this sort of history in the DCU of People being dispatched by the next snap. The only reason I raised that whole uh, history is because heading into the new 52, that history that some of the readers had in the back of their mind would play into the comics when you would see Wonder Woman put somebody in a headlock suddenly there's that slight recollection or that memory of that infamous headlock or neck snap, and you sort of wonder or anticipate whether Wonder Woman is going to do the deed again. And to be honest, that actually was a part of what, and now we're leaving the diject, but let's just sort of really briefly touch on it. It was part of the inspiration behind having Superman cross the line at least once. So what that does is instill in the audience that there are no possibilities for clothes simply on the basis of who they traditionally think the character to be. Instead, they understand that every choice that the character makes going forward is going to be a willful and conscious choice uh, in the light of a history that involves this line being crossed. Now, whether it's a right thing or wrong thing, We'll talk about it in the future, but uh, it's just something I quickly want to highlight as long as we're on this topic right now. The real thing, though, that the next snap indicates is something that's very easy to take for granted in superhero properties or stories, and it's the fact that Superman's organs work. They work as organs should. In other words, he has a central nervous system. He has autonomous organs which can be shut down. He has life-sustaining organs and bodily functions within him. It sounds ridiculous to have to point it out, but if you think about it, a lot of superheroes are suspended by tropes which make them essentially flesh golems. I think one of the more common comic book tropes is accelerated healing. And a lot of times, those comic books don't quite appreciate the amount of trauma that the individual undergoes, irrespective of having accelerated healing, how that trauma would cause you to shut down or result in a cessation of function, irrespective of being able to heal, and traumas which are completely unable to be healed. I'll just give you two really quick ones. One is, for example, the uh, the tendons in one's legs being held under tension. Should those be sliced or cut, you would need a surgical procedure to reattach them and bring them back into tension. Uh, similarly, you know, blood veins, which will uh, retract up into uh, both sides of the wound, no amount of just sort of normal organic healing is going to bring those back into tension unless there's a particularly extraordinary healing ability that somehow has its own intelligence to uh, essentially perform a surgical procedure. Another example is when Superman has historically been made intangible and placed into objects Uh, in the comic books, you could have a spectrum of different reactions to it. And at least two that I can recall off the top of my head. One, there was a uh, encounter with sort of a ninja clan. And I believe there was a female ninja. um, It was drawn in that sort of 90s witchblade style. I believe her name was Ghost or something to that effect. And she had the ability to make herself and other objects intangible. And so she phases Superman's leg or arm or something into the ground. And he simply pulls it out. None the worse for wear right now if you think about that for for a second uh, that's problematic because even if Superman is invulnerable now he has particles of things in his blood in his veins you know phased into the matter of his own being which of course is physically <laughs> problematic in and of itself so but assuming you take that leap and say now you've got matter inside your organs inside your blood well it's obstructing your blood vessels it's obstructing your you know the function of 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 your arm of your circulatory system. And that's going to cause problems. But because we sort of just imbue Superman with being a invulnerable flesh golem, we don't really worry about the operations of his innards and you know, we just say, you're invincible and it doesn't bother him. To be fair, though, there wasn't an alternate example where Superman was phased into the JLA council table by the Martian Manhunter during Grant Morrison's JLA run, and that completely incapacitated him. Now, again, if we follow it to its logical conclusion, it actually should have just outright killed him. But like I said, there's a spectrum or continuum of how we treat the organs or the medical function of Superman uh, within himself when there's in integrity. Now, this is important that Superman's organs works because it leads into the next weakness and the other insight that we can take from it. And that's the atmospheric weakness. Now, narratively, the atmospheric weakness, which again, we talked about very extensively in the last episode, is a stand-in for kryptonite. And with kryptonite, we know that the source of the depowering is traditionally radiation. It's radiological. In this case, it doesn't seem like the, it's the same issue. It's not the same condition. If it was a radiological event or problem, well, first of all, the earth is now bathed in this radiological particulate coming from the world engine for the period that it was operating, right? And I think that would have more import or impact on the story than he saved us. (laughs) If the world was suddenly bathed in this cloud of radioactive Kryptonian material. Secondly, radioactive material would affect even Lois, even if she was wearing a helmet over her head, her body would still be exposed to those radiological elements. And even if it was specifically harmful to Kryptonians, something with that significant radiological signature would still have an effect on humans. So if it's not radiological, then what is it? How did it affect Superman? And I think the answer to that was it was a biochemical effect. Well, that's kind of counterintuitive when you think about the tradition of Superman. You try to think of him as a completely invincible individual. But if you sort of break down the mechanics of Superman, a Superman that can be affected by biochemical reactions is actually more in line with what we think of him in terms of the humanity of Superman. And we have hints to this in the movie. I think the best hint of this is Superman drinks beer. Clark Kent, during the night of Zod's ultimatum to the world, is watching the game and he just casually puts a beer to his lips. I'm going to assume that he's able to taste it and that it isn't simply nothing. I'm going to assume that he's actually able to taste the beer, possibly metabolize it, possibly break it down for energy, but at a minimum, he has to taste it. And how does taste work? Taste works essentially by a biochemical reaction. The taste bud receptors on your tongue, those chemoreceptors, have small elements that are able to react on a molecular level with the contents of the beverage. They're able to discern and detect the chemical makeup and then send signals to the brain informing you of the taste or providing information to you as to what you're consuming right that means that superman has a biochemical reaction with this beer we also see throughout the movie that he has respiration right they make a big deal about his ability to adapt to earth atmosphere as a child and then as an adult having trouble adapting to the kryptonian atmosphere and the question is why and it would be because he's taking that air into his lungs it's going down deep into those organs and those organs are doing their work. So like we discerned from the next snap, he has organs that do what organs do. And with this atmospheric weakness, we also see that Superman interacts with the world biochemically as an organism would, despite his powers. And this may sound kind of silly, but it means that in theory, you could attack Superman through this avenue. It would be a plausible weakness, for example, to make him taste something awful. If he can taste beer, He can taste the foul taste of uh, something rancid or putrid and potentially cause that same sort of reaction in him of disgust or revulsion as would happen in a human, right? And if we take another further step, depending on how extensive those biochemical reactions are, he may actually be susceptible to certain chemical effects and certain weapons along those lines. It's by no means set, though, it may, you know, contravene or contradict our traditional view of superman's invulnerability to things like acid or chemical weapons or noxious gas and so it's by no means set in stone but we have a precedent there that gives us a window to be able to do it that way so the third clear means that occurs in the movies is this the straight up dimensional removal and uh, we we talked about that in a previous episode how the kryptonians were specifically bathed in phantom zone energy both by their travels through it by using phantom drives, also the phantom zone criminals during their stay in the phantom zone, as well as all the things struck by the gravity beam, which was slave to the phantom drive, accounting for the debris, which was lifted up into the singularity and accounting for why Lois Lane, who had not experienced any of those things, fell freely away from it. And this also ties to another principle that we talked about in a previous episode, which is that Superman is not a being of infinite mass right throughout the film we've seen him transported by bus by ship by car by truck by bicycle if superman always had infinite momentum or infinite mass when he was on the debbie sue and the cage was going to fall on him Byrne would not have been able to knock him over and push him out of the way he would have just bounced off of clark But at the same time, the boat wouldn't have been able to move Clark, right? (laughs) And so we know that Clark basically has normal human range mass. The exception that may be jumping out at you is when he was in the bar and the truck driver bully Ludlow tries to push Clark over and just bounces off. Well, how did Clark brace against that? Well, that would be the super strength vector. So he psychically or mentally braces himself for impact, gives himself that additional force vector. And so when Ludlow tries to push the invulnerability or the force vector pushes back and the net result is Clark gets to stand still without getting knocked over. But outside of Clark consciously willing such effects, he otherwise is a object of normal mass. And what that means is, in terms of a quasi-weakness, this normal mass can be transported or taken away or moved away. Now, I don't know that anyone's going to have any more access to phantom zone singularities, but there's still the possibility of faster-than-light transport, of teleportation, of space travel, boom tubes, JLA teleporters, and other similar devices which may be able to move, transport, or exile Superman as a means of delaying him or taking him out of the battle, sort of battlefield removal, if you will. It's not an explicit weakness in the sense that Superman is being harmed, but it is a way to change the face of the battlefield by having Superman not be there. (laughs) Okay, so then the other clear one that is actually in the film is the sensory overload. But of course, we only see those in people that are immature in their powers. We only saw it in Clark at the age of nine, in Zod, when he had just awakened into his powers and lost his helmet, and the same in Feora right? We never see it in Superman. And throughout the movie, undoubtedly, he's experiencing highly intense and highly loud sounds, explosions, frequencies, a whole gamut of sensations, which apparently didn't phase him, distract him, or knock him out, now that he's had at least 24 years of experience with his powers. So it's not known necessarily, that sensory overload would be a weakness at this time in Superman's history. To use it as a weakness, we'd be extending out the logic from the traditional comics. We'd be saying that occasionally in the comics, individuals have been able to use specific frequencies, specific loud noises, or Something along those lines to trigger or harm Superman through the, his super hearing. And I think that's a trope that we're just going to have to get used to. Because if you think about it, if he does have the, as we discussed in the previous episode, auditory omniscience, where he's hearing all the sounds around the world at all times, or has that capability or possibility to do those kind of things once his focus is off. Undoubtedly, somewhere in the world, there's some great noise, great tumult, great, great frequency, some rock band, some explosion or whatever going off, which would harm somebody with particularly sensitive hearing. And yet he never seems to be harmed unless it's an attack directed specifically at him. So it may just be a comic trope that we're going to have to live with. As you can tell, I seem pretty skeptical of this particular weakness. We've only seen it in rookies. There's another couple of examples of why Uh, sensory overload shouldn't necessarily harm Superman now that he's developed the focus and now that he's matured in his powers. One is the fact that traveling into space, he isn't blinded by the sun, for example, the UV rays and all that kind of stuff. uh, The brightness level isn't causing him to lose his vision. And however, as we talked about in previous episodes, this may just be a function of a, uh, you know, psychic gate or focus that he uses in order to protect himself. So, Arguably, if you can bring him into a state of disorientation, take off the gate, take off the focus, then yes, you might be able to disrupt him through hypersonics or a specific frequency or particularly loud noise. So it may be possible. I'm kind of skeptical. I think part of this all lies in whether you believe that Superman has complete control over his abilities or if everything is a sort of involuntary reflex. And I think the only example that i can think of off the top of my head of it being an involuntary reflex is aside from the the sensory attacks that we talked about earlier that could be overcome is when clark is being bullied at the age of 13 and he crushes the fence post in lieu of pummeling or crushing whitney right <laughs> As we sort of discussed before in the unlimited momentum principle or the idea of Superman being to resist being pushed over, I actually think a lot of his powers are not just passive but do require his active control. So for example, his super strength would never be exerted unless he willfully exerts it. There's an entire satirical essay on this point which was never meant to be taken seriously but nonetheless has become a unwitting and unintentional authority on the subject. And that's Larry Niven's Man of Steel, Woman of Kleenex. If you know what it is... You don't need me to tell you about it. A more pop culture version of it may be found in Kevin Smith's Mallrats, but those mostly relate to Superman's inability to control his powers during certain involuntary reflexes. Personally, I never bought that argument, but that's another show. We'll definitely go into that in one of these future episodes where we talk about things that are more about the Superman mythos in general. Now, another weakness that isn't at all explicitly shown or stated in the film, but is a necessary conclusion is what I like to call shaving times 100. As we also discussed in previous episodes, Superman has clearly shaven at least twice in the film, once after the oil rig incident and another time he shaves the stubble that he has in the Arctic before he dons the suit. So somehow, some way, not seen explicitly on screen, Superman is able to damage his own hair, right? (laughs) He's able to cut those follicles and shorten them. And that means that cellular material with Superman level strength, or at least somewhere along the spectrum of Superman level strength. We've seen his hair survive re-entry into earth. We've seen it survive the oil rig fire. We've seen it survive colliding into mountains. We've seen it survive the world engine explosion and getting struck by a gravity beam. So those curly black locks are made of more serious stuff than just your ordinary hair, right? And Superman is somehow able to damage it, shorten it, and cut it off. So whatever mechanism he uses, and the film leaves that ambiguous, it doesn't tell us exactly what it is. You can pick which theory you like, but whatever that mechanism is... That mechanism is able to destroy Superman level's cellular material. So if you amplify that mechanism, it stands to reason that Superman himself could be damaged by that mechanism. So if it's his heat vision, then Superman could be harmed or susceptible to something that emulates or duplicates his heat vision. If it's grinding or plucking or tension or torque or any of those other kinds of arguments that... uh, May have been posed during the Gillette marketing campaign, or posited by fans and geeks, and others who had enjoyed the campaign. Any of those other mechanisms, if amplified to a sufficient state, may potentially be able to harm Superman. So, to a degree, we know that he is not completely invulnerable, unless heat vision can't be duplicated, and it's only his heat vision we can harm him, right? So, it's a vulnerability unto himself alone, right? <laughs> I think that's the list of ones that we pretty much can divine from the film clearly. Okay, we can also talk about stunning or stalling or knocking out Superman, because that does actually occur a couple of times in the film. After the oil rig rescue, he does appear to be either knocked out, dreaming, or exhausted when he floats in the ocean. In the Battle of Smallville, there's several times where he's stunned, knocked out, laying motionless or off-screen and unseen for periods of time. So it does appear that he can be potentially knocked unconscious. We don't explicitly know that he's unconscious, it's just sort of visually implied. And of course, after the world engine, although he was not unconscious, the film clearly was trying to portray that he was exhausted or tired or drained after the world engine feat. It's why he didn't immediately rush off to Metropolis, but instead was laying on his back, reaching out towards the sun. It was showing that there was some sort of toll taken on him. And I think this is an extension of two of the things that we've discussed. One is the fact that, again, he has organs. So he has a central nervous system. He has a brainstem. He has a brain and things that can be concussed and affected in similar or the same way that a human might by certain blows or strikes or whatever, potentially. Now, to be fair, I mean, if it really was a completely just organic brain, I think the titanic blows that he would have received would have uh, caused much more severe neurological issues, even if those elements within him were invulnerable. Um, But the the point is, he's got organs, he's got biological components, which can result in stunning, stopping, stalling that we've talked about. The other thing is that whole lengthy discussion we talked about, how his powers work and how his powers can be cut off and suppressed and the like. I think the world engine scene gives us a little bit insight into what can drain the battery, what can bring him to a state where he's exhausted and on the ground. So if you cut off his battery with K air, uh, or Kryptonian atmosphere. And again, if you haven't seen, or if you haven't listened to the last episode, which explains this whole convoluted thing about how the K air works. The short version is that we analogize Superman to being a laptop with a battery. And so if he's in direct sunlight, his power cord is plugged in. As long as he's not exposed to K-air, his battery is also within him and charged. If he gets exposed to K-air, that's like removing the battery. And if he gets cut off from direct sunlight, that's like pulling off the cord. The world engine scene shows us what it's like if... He's cut off from both, but then gets access to his stores and is able to drain those stores in an incredible feat and then have to recharge them by reaching out to the sun. And I sort of unintentionally spoke about the first of our speculated vulnerabilities, which is solar starvation. Now that we know that the sun is the source of his powers, and we can see what the world engine feat took out of him, it leads to the possibility that a future villain or Batman in some sort of convoluted scenario could theoretically push those batteries and push that power source to its limits such that Superman is low on his reserves. You might remember in The Dark Knight Returns, uh, the comic book, that actually was a plot point. Superman encountered a nuke which drained a large part of his reserves. Solar starvation would be a speculated vulnerability that may occur in the future. Another speculative vulnerability is with sufficiently advanced technology, you may be able to harm Superman. I'm thinking sort of specifically, and and let's let's layer this with the uh, psionics. Again, Superman's biology works through organs. So his mind, it's sufficiently similar to a human's mind. Psychological or psionic assaults are able to affect him. And for example, the Kryptonian interrogation machine was able to interface with him and impact him. Now, maybe it didn't impact him physiologically necessarily, but it was able to traumatize him emotionally and mentally, right? And theoretically, you could push that to the point that it it could lead to, say, a physical trauma. I'm not talking about the matrix where you die in the matrix and you die in reality, but in theory, you could stress out your own organs. You could stress out your own person in a way that is harmful to yourself. It also means that just like in the comics, Superman would possibly be susceptible to certain degrees of mind control or psychic attack. Along the same lines of sufficiently advanced technology, we could also talk about electricity and other forms of energy or direct energy. In the film, we did see the dropship cannon stun him. So he he was briefly downed and affected by that sort of direct energy attack. And most portrayals of Superman through other media, a sufficiently powerful electrical charge is able to affect him know not kill him not certainly not affect him like any other mortal man but he also doesn't completely shrug it off as if it didn't happen there may be no specific rhyme or reason for this it may just be a trope that we have to deal with we see kinetic energy attacks which would have the same level of energy if not more than some of these directed energy attacks completely unfaze him but for whatever reason these more exotic direct energies i guess as a trope are more palatable to audiences to accept that they would affect Superman. So again, it may be something that we just accept. All right, moving on. Another speculated potential weakness is sort of highlighted by the film itself. General Swanwick actually calls out the fact that Clark might have pathogens. And if you think about it, that's actually a very relevant point and something that is hand-waved by the film, but could be explored more fully. Clark's arrival on Earth is under special circumstances. He is in many ways distinguishable from the rest of his Kryptonian brethren. He had a natural birth. He wasn't born through a birthing matrix uh, or through a genesis chamber like all the other Kryptonians. And part of the process of being naturally born imparts onto larger organisms their own microbiome. And if you don't know what a microbiome is, it's the idea that these larger organisms actually have a symbiotic relationship. Well, not necessarily symbiotic, but it has a relationship with a series of microbes on their body. So an organism is not just the larger order multicellular organism that we're used to looking at, but also a whole series of microscopic bacteria, fungi, viruses, and the like, which may affect or help the larger order organism function. For example, humans have all sorts of bacteria or probiotics within their gut that may aid in digestion. We have all sorts of bacteria and funguses on our skin and and, and bacteria within our lungs and all these things which can affect uh, the way we live our lives. It can affect our susceptibility to allergens. It can affect our ability to break down or digest certain foods. And it can affect our uh, immune response. To certain things so we actually are a collection of organisms we're not just ourselves now clark implicitly does not have a kryptonian microbiome with him he he is kryptonian himself but it's sort of presumed that he's sterile or at least any of the microbes which he is carrying have not been able to endure living in any kind of other setting beyond him himself right it cannot leave him and, and the principle behind that is the fact that he's been living on the planet 33 years and hasn't infected or harmed anybody to his knowledge, right? That's basically uh, the retort to him that you know of, right? You don't know that you, you haven't infected anybody. And to be fair to Clark, he didn't know that he was an alien until the age of 13. And to the degree that they had their scientific sophistication and things along those lines, the idea of a microbiome actually is relatively recent, at least as a perspective in looking at organisms. We, of course, knew about germs and pathogens and things like that going way back. But we almost always tended to look at them as uh, negative things uh, where we're trying to Uh, kill 99.9% of the bacteria that reside on us or in us. And nowadays, we're taking a more holistic approach and evaluating the whole being and seeing maybe some of these bacteria give us beneficial effects. And that might be a distinguishing factor between why Clark had a certain reaction to our atmosphere and the Kryptonians didn't, one that I didn't discuss last episode. So if we contrast Clark against the other Kryptonians, it is possible, maybe even likely, that they did bring Kryptonian microbiomes with them. Unless Krypton had scrubbed their entire planet of bacteria and fungi and all those tiny little microorganisms, it's actually quite probable that Zod and his entire crew had microbial life on or in them, a life which they may have brought now to Earth. Life, which nobody on earth is adapted to, even Kalel. And as we've discussed throughout this episode over and over again, Clark's internal organs work like organs. So, something like a veritable molecular machine, like a tiny microbial virus or bacteria or pathogen, may potentially be able to affect, sicken, weaken, infect or replicate within Kalel. And there's a couple of potential infection vectors. Not only do you have Zod and his crew and the Black Zero, both of which Superman spent a certain amount of time on without a helmet with a breather, but also the scout ship. And the scout ship actually predated the Black Zero by 18,000 years. So whatever immunities or other evolutions or developments that they had against or with or in spite of the microbiomes they had 18,000 years ago uh, would not exist for this older ship. And if you remember, there was a, a deceased body on that ship. So that body may also have the remnants of microbiomes on it. I don't think they'd be living anymore, uh, but they might. You know, there's uh, extraordinary kinds of microorganisms that can live in a certain form of stasis. So that might be another avenue for a speculative weakness for them. But as we've been talking about this, uh, this whole subject, it's also possible, maybe even probable, that Kryptonians have completely scrubbed the idea of a microbiome. We do realize that Zod is supremely concerned with eugenics and genetic purity. And he is an individual that has has had that belief instilled to him somehow. It didn't just arise uh, originally within him. It is somehow or some way a value of Krypton. And so if it's a prevailing value of Krypton that Kryptonians need to be sort of genetically pure and have ideal genetics, it's quite possible that They don't like the idea of a sort of symbiosis with all these little microorganisms on them. They may have taken our same sort of antiquated belief of destroying all the microbes absolutely to its logical conclusion and done that they may have completely wiped out their own personal microbiomes and then sort of filled in the gap with their genetic science so a lot of those bacteria a lot of those viruses they sort of perform sort of lower end functions which in theory your body could probably do too if only you could replicate some sort of cell that did the same sort of uh, effect or device within your own body so it you know they may have completely wiped out microbones and and there's an argument that that was sort of the way they went because if you think about it jor-el's arc only preserves the kryptonian genetics it doesn't preserve all of krypton's life it doesn't necessarily preserve all of krypton's knowledge it doesn't preserve uh, all their species, and it seems to be the same kind of thing with these scout ships. Uh, we we do know that they have the growth matrix. We do know that they have the genesis chambers. We can presume that they have the ability to fabricate at least clothes and some basic needs. But we didn't get anything from how will they support themselves in terms of sustenance? Where's their agriculture, their ecology? Where's their animal lifespan? We did see a little bit of that sort of symbiosis between, uh, or cooperation between jor and his mount. But there is almost sort of a, we are the high order life on this planet and we're all that matters kind of sort of perspective. You can kind of see it uh, on the fringes of how this sci-fi society works. Now, obviously... Altogether, it's really just a metaphor. It's really just a a a fable, storytelling device. But to the extent that it's bulletproof, you can sort of argue that they aren't necessarily the kind of culture that would care about preserving or protecting bacteria that they would have to be reliant on. It would be. Maybe abhorrent to them to have to rely on such a low cellular life form to support their lives. They may say, no, we will be the perfect individuals that don't need uh, microbiomes. Anyways, unless you think I'm completely talking insanity, let it be known that in the comic books, there was a Kryptonian virus. There was a Kryptonian bacteria uh, that came back to affect and uh, harm Superman in the comic books. Uh, on at least two different occasions, one in the modern comics and one in the past. But that's another story for another time. I think I've gone on this particular point too long. Uh, I think what I'd like to talk about next is magic as a weakness and not an allergy. (laughs) But to be honest, I can rant on that for ages and I think I'm going long. So I think I'll skip over that for now. The short version, the bullet point version of it is that we know that Wonder Woman is coming. We know that Wonder Woman traditionally has magic in her repertoire in her origin in her tradition and we know that magic is traditionally one of the quote unquote weaknesses of superman and it has been misinterpreted many times and in many regards as an allergy or a particular vulnerability above and beyond what other people would be vulnerable to i'd be happy to rant about that <laughs> and why that's a, a, a wrong headed perspective that doesn't make sense and has no logical basis but I think I'm going long and, and uh, I won't do that today or, or now. So let's move on. All right. So I'm looking at my back of the napkin notes and I just want to quickly run through what Batman could do of the things that we've talked about. So, you know, clearly Batman is probably not going to be pulling off a next snap. Batman is not going to be dropping Superman in the Phantom Zone. He probably doesn't have access to faster than light technology and dimensional portals. So that's out. He probably doesn't know how Superman shaves. He probably could do some of the speculated ones that we talked about. We speculated that maybe Superman is susceptible to biochemical reactions or effects. You know, maybe mustard gas does trigger his taste buds. You know, (laughs) we talked about sensory overload as probably not applying based on what we saw in Man of Steel. However, because it's such a traditional trope, it may be something that just gets pulled out of the bag for Batman. Uh, We talked about him being knocked out, stunned or stalled and these are things that were within the u.s military's sort of roughly their range able to do that you know they weren't quite able to do any of those things but they were able to make sort of superman's head jerk back they were able to affect him a little bit so it may be within batman's range to uh be able to you know hit him with a rocket hit him with a back car those kind of things that that can sort of knock him knock him around knock him about a little bit but not necessarily uh, take him out of the fight the directed energy thing it's going to be whether you know, I don't know if Batman's going to be that sort of science fiction-y. We have started to see shots of the new Batmobile which is sort of radically confronting. It does kind of look a little bit like the old Tumbler crossed with a Formula One racer, crossed with like a dragster. So if Batman has access to and uh, deploys sort of cutting edge technologies, he may have directed energy weapons. He may have hypersonics. He may have some of these things that push the border on sufficiently advanced technology that we talk about, things that might potentially harm Superman. But the real question is, Does he need to, right? I think the the, the problem is that everyone is sort of expecting or thinking that Batman needs to beat Superman. And the question is, what does that mean to you? Because we're not going to be putting them in an arena and uh, ringing a bell and then say round one fight, right? Um, The rules of engagement aren't going to be, let's keep it clean, three rounds, all that. That may be the sort of construct that we use to simplify things to sort of understand how two people coming into conflict can overcome one another to sort of measure up their stats and figure out how they can harm each other and what the likely outcome would be. But that's sort of an oversimplified experiment that doesn't reflect reality or storytelling reality. Very infrequently in storytelling, do you get that very contrived conflict situation? Instead, you get a contrived, conceited reaction for why the two come into conflict outside of a ring, right? And uh, it may be asymmetrical warfare. It may be combat where your interests are different. For example, Batman may be interested in stalling, embarrassing, affecting Superman, but not necessarily taking him out per se, KOing him or com- having complete victory over him in a fighting sense, his interest may be, lay there. And, and then Superman's interest may lay in trying to talk, trying to understand the situation, trying to have a dialogue while this guy is harassing him or throwing bombs at him and trying to trigger his temper or whatever. So with that sort of asymmetrical nature, you can't use the artificial experiment of two people fighting in a ring as pred- a predictor of how the conflict would occur in a storytelling situation. And this is such common sense, and yet, nonetheless, because of the way fandom operates, we fall victim to wanting to put them in the ring and fight in those sort of artificial constraints all the time. So sometimes you just need a little reminder to say, you know, that's not really the way stories work. We don't have to always fight as if we're in a ring, and instead, we may have different goals. And we may have different interests. And uh, in talking about goals and interests, I think that is the real way that these two characters will come into conflict, right? It's going to be a conflict of the the way their two characters mesh and the way their interests uh, either differ or align. So, for example, in terms of interests, things that Batman can apply leverage to, things that drive Superman into conflict with him, I mean, obviously, there are his loved ones. There's Martha and there's Lois. There's his acquaintances, both in Smallville and Metropolis. There's America as a whole and then humanity as a whole, the whole planet. Uh, I'm going to use a pre-recorded essay, which doesn't quite go on topic, but sort of summarizes this thing and uh, will fill out my time. So that's where I'm going to go with that. You're the answer, son. And we'll discuss if Batman and Superman are really going to have to throw down. Let me preface this by saying there is no greater advocate for Superman's superiority in a straight fight than me. In fact, I think in most arrangements that aren't a straight fight is still in Superman's favor, except for that one scenario where the writer is specifically attempting to contrive a victory for Batman. In fact, Angry Joe did a video based on why Superman beats Batman based on a short essay that I wrote on the topic. You can find a link to that in the show notes. That said, as a huge Superman fan, I think that Superman being challenged by Batman is going to be a great thing for his character in the long run. Prior to Man of Steel, what were the two most common critiques raised against Superman as a character? He's too strong. He's too perfect. I have not heard that tired refrain in some time after Man of Steel, even by critics of the film. If anything, they fault him for not being stronger or more perfect. And then comes boring if he is strong and perfect. In my eyes, they overcame those criticisms not by deconstructing Superman, but by creating a challenge that rose to his level. However, the scope of that threat was limited and primarily physical in dimension. There was an aspect of heritage and lineage and duty to one's people, but it was mostly a backnote to Superman flexing his full powers for the first time. The reason Batman acts as such a perfect foil in a follow-up film is that it lets general audiences see Superman is multi-dimensional. Without having necessarily to raise the physical stakes again, catastrophe can lose its meaning if the audience becomes numb to its ever-increasing scope. Batman allows the filmmakers to challenge Superman's alleged perfection, again without necessarily deconstructing it, but by providing a different lens by which reasonable minds may differ, to test, but not exceed, Superman's strength in context, and to show that Superman is anything but boring. Now, how could Batman represent any kind of threat to Superman? Superman is clearly much stronger and much more capable. Well, for the purposes of who-would-win type conversations, We can often be reductionist and try to simplify the variables to the point that we have two combatants in a ring attempting to defeat, subdue, or kill the other. But real life and stories with the veracity of real life don't need to be so simplistic. Threat does not need to be limited to physical threat to oneself. A threat can be against anything which one holds as an interest and which contravenes that interest. In Man of Steel, superman exhibited many interests that went beyond his physical preservation of self he had interests in protecting the lives of others he saved the people on the bus in the oil rig etc he had an interest in protecting his secret both during the film and in downing the drone in talking with general swanwick he had an interest in saving the world even at the expense of his freedom surrendering to humanity or at the expense of his life in fighting the world engine or at the expense of his heritage giving us his ship and his pendant and his potential people. Superman had an interest in having a career, which is why he becomes Metropolis Clark. He has an interest in having a love life, thus his attraction to Lois, and so on and so forth. With two years of Batman prep time, I'm certain that the world's greatest detective could find ways to exert pressure, or leverage, or be a threat to Superman's non-bodily preservation interests. A threat against the planet was enough to get Superman to give up his secret and his freedom. A threat against his mother was enough to get him to give up his father-instilled lifelong conviction against violence. It's not unreasonable that Batman could create a threat that causes Superman to be his own weakness or to reveal it, for example, if Superman doesn't share that atmospheric weakness. In fact, that's exactly what Batman did in their first classic post-crisis meeting in Burns' Man of Seal miniseries. Batman used Superman's nature against him by threatening to hold random innocents hostage. If Superman were to touch him, a bomb would blow off somewhere in the city. He used his own reputation as a violent vigilante to keep Superman at bay. Sort of. There was some one-upsmanship, but that's another story for another time. Now, how Batman does this, what interests are exposed, and what limit both are willing to go to is the stuff that character studies are made of, and potentially compelling and multidimensional. This would mean that Batman needs to develop some form of technology to expose Superman's weakness, right? No, as discussed above, he could exert leverage another way, or use context to cause Superman to essentially weaken himself. In The Dark Knight Returns, the infamous face-off only occurs after Superman agrees, essentially, to a public duel, rather than just incapacitating Batman from space when burning the into the ground and survives nuclear attack because of his proclivities. Post Man of Steel, Superman may have a strong aversion to death, violence, or collateral damage, which in and of itself would heavily limit the context of his power usage. The bottom line is I'm expecting a far more intelligent and compelling story to come out of their conflict than a mere fistfight in the streets, even if we get some of that. Now all that said, additionally, for all his strength, we didn't see any appreciable damage to Kryptonian armor or clothing. Now, do any of those allow for Batman to have decisive victory over Superman? Well, not really, not without contrivance. But that's the point of the film, to create such contrivances to make it believable as possible. And that assumes that the goal is total decisive victory over Superman, and we know that isn't necessarily the goal. Batman may only need a temporary delay to disorient, annoy, or distract Superman in order to make a statement or to humble him or whatever within the context of the story. Even in The Dark Knight Returns, that fight ends with Batman in the ground. If getting a few hits in is a win, then let's let the Bat-fans have it. At the end of the day, we know that their conflict leads to the Justice League, so it's ultimately Superman's ideals that prevail. Now, all that said, I don't know that Batman has to do all this to work, especially if there are known metahumans in play, which could contribute to any of Superman's personal weaknesses. As for something from the comics, something that I always found innovative was Batman throwing lead dust at Superman to blind him, since his x-ray vision doesn't work on lead. Now in Man of Steel, we haven't been given that limitation, so it would be a little left field, but that's more within the spirit of what people are looking for. Anti-Superman Batman tactics. I think at the end of the day, the the premise of the question, how would Batman win, is wrong. It assumes that Batman needs a credible, I-need-to-stop-Superman-by-myself physical threat ability. Rather, the two can be in conflict, both ideologically and physically, without Batman needing to be able to put Superman down. You're the answer, son. All right. Unfortunately, I'm pressed for time, so I'm just going to run through the the rest of my back-of-the-napkin outline. In terms of sort of character weaknesses... Um, things that the inexperienced and frustrated Clark showed, which could be exploited as a rookie Superman, somebody that's not completely developed as a character yet, and which allows for a character arc, and which allows for a, a novice Superman to come into conflict with Batman, as opposed to a more seasoned Superman a more established Superman, one that could basically readily handle any kind of conflict or inciting incident with a Batman without having to fight or without having sort of any issues. What we have here is uh, the possibility that the Superman prior to discovering his origins clearly had a temper or impulse control issues. As we talked about before, he did share that with his father saying that, you know, I wanted to hit him so bad. Uh, He did crush the fence post. He didn't go so far as to actually hit Whitney. So (laughs) that does show a certain amount of self-control. But by the time that he's had some distance from his father and he's had to live with frustration for decades, when he comes to Ludlow's truck, clearly he had an issue of temper and impulse control there. I think in his saner, calmer moments, if he asked himself, what would Jonathan Kent do? What would mom say? He certainly would not have destroyed Ludlow's truck, but when he's independent, he's a man, but nonetheless perpetually frustrated by questions he couldn't answer and put it into a situation where he felt powerless but knew that he wasn't. There, somebody was able to trigger his temper and his impulsiveness. He's also highly inexperienced, right? After Man of Steel, he's only ever done this on this scale and in this public persona, once. Lois does indicate that he has had a history of helping people. He has had a history of being that guardian angel and rescuing people. Obviously, we only see a couple of incidents in the movies, and they only draw a dot between a couple of incidents in the movies. But the dialogue between Lois, both in her narration and in speaking with Clark, seems to indicate a larger history of do-gooding. But nonetheless, in his public persona, he is inexperienced. And that inexperience can potentially lead to all sorts of uh, character flaws or mistakes or things that the Batman could exploit. And one of those hot buttons, one of those things that might be something that could affect a rookie or somebody inexperienced or a novice in a emergency services kind of field, is guilt right? So we did talk about in a previous episode, if you're going to be in that field, if you are going to be in emergency services, if you are going to be a fireman, if you are going to be somebody that rescues people as your profession, you cannot continue in your profession If you get consumed by the people that you couldn't save, you just have to focus on doing your best and on the good job that you did do. But people are human, and especially on your first time out, on the first time that you fail, the first time that you have those problems, those issues are going to weigh on you. They are going to affect you. But it is something that those who are called to that profession overcome. It is something that they get beyond once they have more experience. Uh, it's not a hardening of the heart. It's just a changing of perspective. They understand at a certain point that they aren't helping anybody by carrying around the burden of those that they didn't save. So that may be a part of the Superman arc in the upcoming films. It may be or may not be. A lot of people want to see it dealt with. They want to see it handled I'm actually not in the camp that particularly wants to see it, but I can understand it. I can understand why people might want to have to see that parsed out. At the same time, I don't think it is at all unreasonable for Superman to have already moved past it. And we've talked about that in previous episodes. I'm not going to retread it right now, but it's not an inevitability that one should feel guilt. It does tend to be something that comes out of inexperience. So it's possible that Superman... Just has a uh, Superman has a more, ideal, uh, a more idealized reaction to what happened in the BZE and therefore uh, doesn't have guilt as a specific vulnerability or uh, hot button point for him in terms of his inexperience. But his inexperience can come into play in all sorts of other manners. Within the larger DC cinematic universe, you also have to remember that Superman is essentially debuting as the world's first super powered. Being. and so a lot of these rules a lot of these tropes a lot of these things that we've come to expect and take for granted uh, or assume as people that have watched all these films who have read all these comics and have been entrenched in superhero culture a lot of these things we just take for granted and we adopt as tropes and we just assume but from his perspective he's coming into it completely as a novice completely as the test case the uh groundbreaker on all these things And so it's a common mistake to judge him or compare him to sort of the established or the expected uh, that we've come to internalize from worlds where superheroes seem to be more prevalent. As another sort of little character flaw, if you want to call it, is that Superman is more trusting and more optimistic. Not to say that the film is necessarily trusting or optimistic per se. Uh, I I don't want to say that the film is cynical either. I don't think that it is. I think it actually is filled with a lot of hope, a lot of faith, and both of those things are rewarded. But it is a reality not supported by a lot of the sort of traditional tropes that make a more lighthearted superhero possible. Nonetheless, Clark shows a lot of trust and optimism in moving forward with things. He essentially agrees to or believes in Zod's deal. He goes on to Zod's ship rather than initiating a, physical confrontation. When Lois agrees to tag along, he doesn't immediately protest or completely rebel against that. He trusts, he has an optimistic belief that Lois is going to make it through it, and that potentially Zod will uphold his end of the bargain. So there's that sort of trust and optimism going. He trusts Pa Kent's position, despite the imposition on his own personal life and the, and that repressiveness of that position. He trusts his father. He believes that his father has his best interests at heart. And because he trusts him, he trusts him with such conviction and at such personal cost. Again, that's, that level of trust is something that potentially could be exploited or affected by the Batman. He trusts Swanwick to speak for him. In this day and age, there's many other avenues in order to bring your message forward. He could just spew whatever he wants on the internet. He could go through the press. He could go through skywriting or putting stuff on the moon or whatever. But instead, he takes a more moderate approach. He takes a reasonable approach, which is to go through Washington, to go through the official channels and those who who make the rules and establish the rules in order to first get their position, first hash out things with, with them, and then reach the public. But in doing that, he opens the dialogue with Swanwick. Swanwick was a guy that showed a certain amount of skepticism and did sort of confront Superman on a number of times. And nonetheless, Clark extends a certain amount of trust to him. In a number of ways first of all he trusts swanwick to be the one to bring his message to washington and not only bring his message to washington but bring his message in a way that is persuasive he's asking swanwick to convince them and something i have to emphasize is all this trust all this optimism this is not out of character both within the film and for the larger character throughout the ages and in tradition if we think about something like the kryptonite ring or the kryptonite bullet, depending on which uh, portrayal you're seeing, giving that to Batman is that sort of extension, that symbol of trust, showing sort of two-sided both trust and optimism, but also pragmatism in a little bit of way, right? Because it's a complicated symbol, right? Because it's saying, I trust you, and I'm making myself vulnerable to you. But the reason or part of the reason I'm doing this is not only because I trust you, but in case something goes bad, I want you to be there as a catch-all. And so there is that that cloud over the over the gesture of kindness to say, well, of course, this is a contingency in, in case things goes bad. But somehow that never quite envelops or infects that, that scenario. The scenario is almost always one which portrays the bond between the two characters and the trust that Superman has for Batman over something that could make him weak, that could make him mortal, that could harm him. The last one real quick is Superman's morality such that it is. I don't want to go into Feyre's talk right now. I don't have the time, but it is true right? Superman, it is one of his interests in terms of protecting him, uh, in, in terms of protecting others. It isn't just the protection of others, but he also does have morals. He does have codes. He does have uh, beliefs, which constrains and restrains his uh, behavior. And those might be points of leverage, points of contention, which Batman can use against Superman. Their first meeting in the John Byrne Man of Steel reboot actually did leverage Superman's morality as a way of standing toe-to-toe with Superman. All right, that's going to be my time. Uh, I, I, again, I really apologize for how haphazard, uh, this episode was. It wasn't, it definitely is not as, uh, fully noted as I would like, but it was more free flowing. It was sort of more off the top of my head. So if you did like it this way, then let me know, and maybe I'll stop scripting the episodes so uh, harshly, and maybe I'll just do them more free form. Personally, I hate that because then I don't hit all the points that I want. I'm not sure that I'm not repeating myself endlessly, and I don't know if it's organized as, as structural as I like. As you may or may not be aware, I I am an attorney and I'm used to writing briefs where things are very structured. You're you're really trying to attack very specific points and lay out a a very thorough argument on everything that you're trying to do. And so being a little more free form is sort of counterintuitive to that approach. But at the same time, if it does cut down on my pre-production period, then uh, these episodes may be easier to get up. And we might be able to get more of them. Just so you know, the plan for the next episode is secret identity. I think there's a lot of fun issues uh, surrounding the maintenance and control and potentiality of the secret identity. So I think that's where we're going to go next. And that will be episode eight. All right. I think I've rambled on long enough. Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary is a proud member of the superman podcast network so here are some promos for the network and a couple of promos for some fellow shows that i suggest you check out if you want to extend your enjoyment of the superman mythos gathered together from the far reaches of the internet our assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero superman The Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring Superman and Batman, Golden Age Superman, The Superman Fan Podcast, The DC Comics Presents Show, From Crisis to Crisis, A Superman Podcast, It's Superman, The Schuster Herald Podcast, The Carousel Podcast, Superman Forever Radio, Superman Lives, Up Up and Away, Cadmus to Crisis, A Superboy Podcast. The Amateur Steel, a John Henry Allen podcast, the world's best podcast, and Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com. Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, <laughs> Charlie Niemeyer, Russell Brad, Brad, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, <laughs> Scott Gardner, Sam Rizzo, Danny Sapp, Bob Fisher, Moe. Mario Benessi, Drew Wintermeyer, <laughs> David Byer, Matthew Epps, I'm Isaac, I'm Adam, Dave Yunus, and co-host Scotty V at supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Hey everybody, this is Drew from Cadmus to Crisis, a Superboy podcast. We're new here on the Superman Podcast Network, and we're following the adventures of Superboy in his 1990s comic book and a lot of his crossovers. So if you want to hear more about Superboy and, you know, cool shades, leather jackets, uh, Hawaii, I think he fights Sidearm, uh, he fights uh, Captain Boomerang, and no wait, he works with Captain Boomerang. Anyway, we're available on iTunes and, you know, everywhere else you can get a podcast. So, come check us out. This is Mick, and I'm from MickRed.com. I'm launching a new comic podcast starting with Jeff Johns and John Romita Jr.'s run on Superman 32. I'll also be covering the DC Essential graphic novels. uh, Some I've read before, and many will be new to me. I'll cover those as I read them, and I won't reveal any plot details or spoilers until I get to those. Like any Mickred production I'm on, the language will be family friendly, so head over to Mickred.com now and subscribe to Mick's Super Comic Cast. That's M I C K R E D.com. Talk to you soon. Alright, welcome back. Thanks so much for listening. I just love discussing this stuff, and if you've stuck with me, hopefully you do too. I'm genuinely grateful for each and every listener. I hope you send me some feedback in the comments or by email at manasteelanswers.com. That way, if you have a question that you want answered, insights that you want to share, or commentary to make, you can post in our forums. All your like minded apologists to see, or you can email me at mosaic at man of steel I've actually received a lot of great feedback and a lot of great questions, and I'll definitely be getting to them in a future episode. So if you'll just be patient with me, we'll get to that soon. If you like what you heard, please review the show on iTunes and subscribe. This is Dr. Awkward, your DC Cinematic Universe apologist, signing off. See you next time. You're the answer, son.